Hey everyone, welcome back to today's show. Um, we have a special report, I guess, or at least a special episode on something that's happening right now that is extremely current and extremely relevant in the world of vaccinations. And I know um, some of the groups I'm in, a lot of people have been emailing me and there's conversations going around what's happening in Samoa right now with the measles outbreak. Of course, what we hear in the media and what we see portrayed there is actually quite different from what's going on on the ground. And there are a few features that I want to highlight in this episode. So what I'm going to do in this introduction, I actually wasn't planning on doing an introduction. Um, I just wanted to like minimize editing and get this out there. But uh, I felt it necessary because this is a longer episode again, and I wanted to really summarize and encapsulate what we covered on this particular episode and hit some of the high notes here. So uh, the first thing that I think is important to understand is that all fingers point back to New Zealand. Okay, so what we have is we have a Polynesian population who, as you will find out, are a little bit more susceptible uh, for whatever reason to these types of outbreaks. We now have families traveling back and forth between Samoa and now spreading this particular uh, measles virus. Now, what you'll also discover is that there are four strains and we're not quite sure which strains are getting passed back and forth. We suspect that it might be one particular strain called D8. Now, that said, um, that's the sort of human-to-human -human transmission of what's going on here. But the other side of the picture is that when you look at the timelines of when these mass vaccination programs started in Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, and so on, you will see that there is a very interesting correlation. And uh, essentially what I'm getting at is these outbreaks all happen post Max, mass vaccination. And I'm not going to stand here and say that it's caused by the vaccine necessarily, but I think it's important to look at that timeline because what we're going to see is that we have human-to-human -human transmission going back and forth from New Zealand to Samoa, and at the same time, we've got a mass vaccination campaign underway. And um, as you're going to hear in this episode, uh, a lot of people are getting measles after they've been vaccinated. Uh, you'll actually see in Tonga, they've tested everyone. They've tested about, I think, 200 people or, or so up till now. And every single person had been properly vaccinated, yet they still contracted the measles. So really what we're looking at here is we're looking at a combination of vaccine failure. We're looking at a, a combination of human-to-human -human transmission in a population that is vulnerable. But when you add a whole another layer on top of this, which is the nutritional status. Okay, so this is another important point. The nutritional status of Samoans um, is, is quite well established in terms of deficiencies, right? So we know that there are macro and micronutrient deficiencies. Uh, vitamin A deficiency is quite prevalent in a, a percentage of that population. And we're also going to see that in all of these populations, you know, I said, I mentioned Tonga a minute ago, but you're going to see that the population in, in New Zealand, that, pop, that Polynesian population had a vaccination rate upwards of 98%. So we are talking technically about achieving herd immunity. However, there are a lot of other confounding factors. Now, when you start looking at the deaths that are happening, um, you know, again, look at those timelines. So we've got mass vaccination protocols, shortly thereafter, mass outbreaks. And now what we're doing is we're doubling down by mass vaccinating everyone again. So everyone's now getting more shots. And we're also 
including acetaminophen or paracetamol, which cuts your fever, so weakens your immune system. And then we're also prophylactically eat, um, treating with antibiotics, which, of course, wrecks your microbiome and your immune system in with regards to your intestines. So there's a lot of variables and moving parts here, but I think that what you're going to get from this episode is a little bit more of a real world kind of picture of what's happening over there. And I will just preface this whole episode by saying that we don't have all the answers yet. This story is happening right now. And my big concern with all of this, aside from, you know, these catastrophic fatalities or potential fatalities, which which are happening already, my other concern is how this is going to dictate uh, public policy, because what you're seeing out there is that this is being blamed on anti-vaxxers, that it's anti-vaxxers and unvaccinated children that are spreading this. And this is just simply not the case at all. We're also seeing that there is well-established science to show that vitamin A treatment actually works. And there are nurses now on the ground in Samoa who are treating uh, people with 100% success rate with vitamin A. So so the, there's a lot of questions here with regards to policy, because if we know according to who, according to PubMed, you know, if the literature shows us that vitamin A works, why are we not sending over bottles and bottles of vitamin A? And in fact, what we're doing is we're actually locking people up who are bringing vitamin A there. So this is a real tragedy in that sense. And, and I think that, uh, again, my concern here is, you know, we here in North America and many countries around the world, we're staring mandatory vaccinations in the face right now. And my concern with all of this is that the narrative that's coming out of Samoa and, you know, through the mainstream media is that these outbreaks are caused because people are not properly vaccinated therefore we need to mandate vaccines and everyone needs to get shots to ensure that these outbreaks don't happen and in actual fact when you look at the data you will see that most people are in fact already vaccinated which again tells me that there's a problem here with the vaccines either the strains are not matched the vaccines are faulty or for whatever reason improper storage we already know that that's part of the case here but the, the issue that, once again, the issue that I have here is what does this mean for you and me sitting here in North America, right, for you sitting in Europe or wherever that is? Because the solution to this problem, especially in Samoa, is not to double down and triple down with all of these vaccinations. Uh, the solution is really to start looking at updating vaccines at improving nutritional status and, um, you know, other things that can be done. So anyway, I think that you'll find this episode uh, pretty interesting uh, Hillary is a wealth of information, has been researching um, vaccines for, you know, probably around 40 years now, maybe a little longer than that. And um, yeah, I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode. Um, as always, you know, share this with your friends, your family, your community. And uh, I would love to know what you think. You know, I'm going to be sharing this all over the internet. And, um, you know, I would love to catch up with you in the comment section. So um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Enjoy today's show. Here is Hillary Butler. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me. So can you give us just a lightning fast background of yourself? I mean, I follow you on Facebook. Um, I've seen, you know, the posts that you share and the information that you share is, is extremely insightful and very well researched. But perhaps give us a bit of background on yourself. A lightning fast review. <clears throat> 
Well, I wasn't born in New Zealand. I was actually born in Scotland and came to New Zealand as a child because my father was headhunted here. So I, I came not really knowing the language very well, but <clears throat> anyway, settled in. And we came here in 60, 1962. And, and at that time, we used to get measles every two years. And measles would come in and go out like a bell curve. And we'd get about 110,000 cases a year, right? And for us, measles was just what happened. If, if kids had measles, it's, we never heard of anybody getting seriously sick. We never heard of anybody dying. There were a few that did get sick and there were a few that were dying, but they were so few and far between that they weren't part of the grapevine. Not like today. Anyway, I grew up and I had a few vaccines and had some, some reactions to them. But at the time they were, I was told it was nothing to do with it. It was something else. So I never really thought about it. And then when I got married, <coughs> I got pregnant and started researching. But you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes researching can be quite hard. So I did my very best. We landed up... Um, with a very nasty labor and delivery with our first child, which absolutely rocked me. Um, to be honest, I felt raped. And um, it's something I still have difficulty talking about, but it did actually reframe my brain. I realized that I didn't know what I didn't know and that I hadn't researched things the right way. But I went home with a baby that was constantly screaming. And he was constantly screaming because of what had been, had been done to him. And he either ate, um, screamed, or slept for 20 minutes. Ate, screamed, slept for 20 minutes. And this went on for weeks. And so when the doctor, I went for my six-week checkup, and the topic of vaccines came up, and I was like, well, <clears throat> excuse me, you said a whole lot of things about my labor and delivery and what would happen, and exactly the opposite happened. And I said, I'm not even prepared to think about labor and delivery yet. I haven't processed this. So um, if anybody's really interested in the complete story, um, my husband and I wrote a book. It's on Amazon.com called Just a Little Prick. And there's a chapter in there called Wake Up Call. And that tells it in detail. But if I tell it in detail, I'll cry. But anyway, um, to cut an even longer story short, <coughs> My doctor and I landed up in loggerheads because I borrowed his obstetrics textbook and found out that everything he said would happen and everything that did happen was quite the opposite to his obstetrics textbooks. But what was most interesting was he'd never read his obstetrics textbook. There were still pages that were actually not cut. And you can tell when you read a book. So I actually challenged him. And he said, no, I hadn't read my obstetrics textbook because I was so busy in my obstetrics unit doing what had to be done, I just listened to the teacher. So I said, well, did your teacher read the textbook? And there was silence. And, I, and it dawned on me. And, you know, I thought, well, is anything you're telling me about vaccines true either? And because all he did was he gave me the sheet of paper as to what the vaccines were and when they should be had. And so I thought, well, I'm not even going to bother to ask him. I'm going to start, I'm going to go up to Filson Medical Library and I'm going to start researching myself. And I kept just pushing it away. And come 10 months, when my child was 10 months, the doctor really, really started to harass me. And remember, this is an 81. So, you know, we talk about harassment now, but it did happen to a degree then. And most parents didn't know anything and just did it. But... Um, 
he, he demanded I come and see him. So I took with him a wine box full of medical paper. I, I, in those days, I didn't have the room that you would have seen behind me if, if you had been doing visual. The walls are lined with medical articles. Um, so I took a wine box with me and he was pushing me and I just pushed it in front of him and I said, here is what I've collected in eight months from Filson Medical Library on the vaccines you said I need to have. Now, I would like you to read this or this box and then we'll have another discussion. And he started flipping through the articles and um, he just went really, really quiet. And then he stopped and he pushed the box back to me and he said, I don't want to. And I said, okay, if you don't want to, then don't you harass me about my decision because I'm making my decision based on the literature that you say you don't want to read. And that's what started it all. <clears throat> and then I pretty much kept quiet and until I started to meet a bit of resistance amongst some parents, but the home birthing group parents, they sort of sat back because my second child, I had a home birth. So I had to join the home birth association and go to meetings and be part of the library. And all this time I'm doing all this research and they'd see me with medical papers and they'd look at them and, oh, I didn't realize this stuff was here. You know, what do you really think? And I said, well, I don't know enough. I don't want to go public. I'm just in the process of doing this. Well, can, well you know, can we have some meetings and just talk about what you're doing? So I started sharing at the home birth meetings. And then once I got much more information and much more confident, five years later, they invited me to their um, annual conventions. Then I started talking publicly. And then there was, at one of these conventions, there was a reporter who was there actually as a mother who was intending to have a baby from the New Zealand, the New Zealand Herald the biggest paper in the country. And she decided to come to my talk, which was just, it was actually just, you know, sitting around discussing all these things. And she was challenged, really challenged. And she did, she, she came to me afterwards and said, well, I'm actually a reporter. I know I'm pregnant and all the rest of it, but I'm a reporter and I'd really like to do an article on this. So that was the first article, 1986. They did a full page article on me and it was because there was this sort of thing had never been done before. It was actually quite a good article. <laughs> and, and, and for the next five years, there were some very, very good articles in major magazines about what I was doing and what I was saying. And, and, and some of the reporters who came to me came to me to destroy my argument. And I said, fine, I don't mind if you destroy my argument, but first you have to read the literature on the topic that you, I will give it to you. Here's the medical literature. You go away, read that, and then come and destroy my argument. Not one journalist that came through this house landed up vaccinating their kids. Wow. Wow. Incredible. And so that, that, that journey is detailed the, thir the, the 30 years from our first son's birth to 2006 is detailed in our first book, Just Little Prick. And then other issues that came out of that are detailed in the second book, which is called From One Prick to Another. Hmm. Don't ask me what I'd call a third book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is all very fascinating. And, you know, I, I think that's um, a really great segue into our topic of the day. But just a couple of things just to circle back. I mean, you, you know, 
the whole idea of destroying someone's arguments and and um, I find that in this day and age, I mean, you're quite fortunate that those reporters actually went and did do some reading and then yes. came back and sort of actually sat there with a little bit more of an, an adjusted frame um, to critically think about this. And, and you know, I, I think what we're starting to see now in the public discourse is, you know, just such a polarized, heated debate. But I find that a lot of people have not done any research whatsoever. They're simply buying into an ideology. Perhaps they're buying into the fear mongering, um, you know, the you know, that, that sort of um, rhetoric, I guess. And, you know, I think if people did do the research or at least did some kind of research, um, they might at least bring themselves a little bit more back to center um, versus be completely so, you know, so extremely um, 100% for and safe and effective, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, you know. Yeah, yeah, I do. The advantage back then, well, first of all, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to do... Um, a, a search on the medical database. I had one of two options. I could go and look at, I could go into a room I used to call the dark hole of Calcutta and fill some medical library. It was this tiny little, very dark hole, which had the indexus medicus. And each of these books was three inches wide, 12 inches tall, nine inches wide, and don't dare drop it on your toe. <laughs> and sort of partway through um, researching, they introduced what was n- known with the first computers as a medline search but what you had to do was you had to go up to the library you had to pay in advance and it was it was sixty dollars per search and you had to give your references as to what you wanted to search and they would post this you remember the original computers all the paper came out and it would fold itself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they would post that out to you four weeks later Wow. And so the journalists who came to saw me, see me, a lot of them were brought up in the same education system I was, where every term you had a compulsory book. For instance, The Lord of the Flies, you'd had to read it, you'd had to do write a precy on it, you'd have to take aspects of it and expand them. And so we had this education system then, which was not diverted by IT. Nobody was addicted to IT. Nobody had a phone. We concentrated on keeping the main thing the main thing. We knew how to focus. We knew how to research. We knew what the library Dewey system was. We knew how to get stuff that wasn't immediately available in the library. We knew how to think. And today, unfortunately, I do have a bit of a disconnect because this younger generation doesn't read, doesn't research, is addicted to their phones, spends most of their time on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, putting up pictures of what they're eating, and they assume that all of the experts know everything and they don't have to know anything because the experts are always right. Mm. Mm. And that's, that's how I feel sometimes when I'm talking to some people, not all people. Some young people have actually been brought up without IT. Some of them have been homeschooled. Some of them have learnt to think and they actually find it very difficult talking to their peers because they feel like they're a different species. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, not to labor over it, but that, that is the obvious problem um, in this day and age, I feel, where, you know, we can't read more than 100 words. So a lot of people don't even click on articles. We just look at the headline and that actually forms our entire belief system and, you know, we consider ourselves well-researched at that point. Um, and the medical profession takes advantage of that because when I when I, I read full-text medical articles, I, I never take any notice of abstracts. Mm-hmm. 
and I never take any notice of conclusions either. What I take notice of is the discussion, the methods, what they did, what they found. And the medical profession is quite happy with a generation that just wants to read an abstract and maybe a conclusion, but wants to miss all the middle bits. So they hide the really good stuff in the mm. middle bits. Mm. Interesting. Well, um, just in the interest of time today, because I do want to get to this, let's <laughs> let's just jump into it. And um, I think, you know, one thing that we were speaking about off air is, you know, I think it's important for us to give uh, a lot of context to the background of this current measles epidemic or outbreak, whatever you want to call it, in Samoa. So, you know, one of the big questions that is, you know, on everyone's mind is where did this actually come from? And, you know, we can talk a little bit about the actual vaccine, um, you know, different strains, uh, et cetera. We can talk about that in a minute. But, um, you know, the initial outbreak, you know, we were talking about New Zealand. We were talking about Polynesian um, communities in New Zealand. So perhaps let's start there and see where we land up. Okay, well... All fingers point back to New Zealand because in the last year, New Zealand has New Zealand has had an outbreak of measles. Now, I do have to say, if you go to the New Zealand public health website, esr.nz, if you look at the measles graphs on, because this is where I get all my data from, the, the Ministry of Health, that is their primary data point. So everything I'm going to say, even though... It's on their website, and I keep up to date with it all the time. You will see that New Zealand has never been measles-free. We have never had a year where there hasn't been measles here, but some years there's more cases than others. So in 2016, I think there was a couple hundred, and you know you can go through all that data yourself. But this year, we had a really, really big outbreak. And over the over the last year, there's been over 8,000 suspected cases. But in this country, unlike Samoa, if a doctor thinks a person has measles, they are PCR tested. And if, they do, if it comes back positive, then they are a confirmed case. If they are not, if it doesn't come back positive, it's scrubbed from the data. So we've had these suspected cases. We know roughly how many there are, but most of them have been scrubbed from the data. 78% nationwide of cases that were tested were not measles. And what that tells you is that doctors don't actually know how to diagnose measles. We think it's measles, we'll test. Oops, it's not. Right. Can, can, so, can, I, can I interject for one second here? Because something yep. is glaringly obvious. This is not reported in the media. You're going to hear in the media that there's 8,000 cases and end of story. We'll, we'll no, 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 no. No, the media is, is pretty good on this one. Okay, they, only, they only report the confirmed cases. They never report the fact that doctors don't know how to diagnose. They think it's measles. They have it tested because they think it's measles and it turns out not to be measles. So only the, the, the 2,100 and something cases that we've had, that's only 22% of the cases that were tested. So we're looking at over 8,000 suspected measles cases, but the, the paper does report only confirmed cases. Whereas, for instance, the difference with Samoa is they haven't tested most of their cases at all. What you're talking about with Samoa is suspected measles oh mm -hmm. i looked at it and i think it's measles 
but when they actually they have they did test i think it was 200 cases and only 42 came back positive okay and they stopped testing oh wow okay we'll, we'll circle back to that in just a minute yeah so back to new so, zealand so yeah. what, what, what happened there what happened what happened here and actually it's been really interesting for me because as i say i came here in 1962 so i know what measles used to look like and my children got measles at a time when measles was in the vaccination schedule and the and the funny thing was at the time as parents even the parents who vaccinated their kids expected their kids to get measles because as far as they <laughs> this is what happened it was the joke of the town oh don't worry kids had me the measles vaccine but they'll probably get it and sure enough they would that's another thing that wasn't really discussed at the time so i know what measles looks like this year um of course i, I i've been deeply involved because a lot of the parents whose kids had measles this year, hadn't seen measles because even though New Zealand has, has always had measles around, they've been much lower numbers and so it's not been circulating through the community like it did up until 1997. From 1997 to 2019, the circulation has not been endemic. It's just been episodic. So the, uh, some of these parents didn't know what measles looked like. Well, I can tell you, the measles in 2019 in this country did not look like the measles in 1960 and in 1980 and in 1990. There was something different about it. Now, I don't know. I mean, we know, you see, in 1960, there was only two strains of measles known. There was A and another one. Now we have about 30 different strains. And something has actually happened, I feel, because a lot of the families that I was involved with, um, you, you couldn't compare them to Samoan children. And some of those children got hit in a way that I did not see my kids or any of my friends back in the 80s get hit. Now, there could be many factors. It could be IT. It could be EMF. It could be glyphosate. There could be so many things in the environment that change how a body deals with measles. I grant you that. But I saw measles rashes of a type that I've never seen before. Um, it actually, and the interesting thing is, I had natural immunity. My kids went through measles. I didn't get measles when my kids went through it because I had natural immunity. But this time, all of the people that I, I went to saw their kids who were infectious. I just waltzed in and I thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. I mean, I have immunity for life, you know. This is, this is going to be fine. Tell you what, I got hit. Oh, really? I, didn't get, I didn't get spots. I did not get spots, but what I, a lot of, and, and here's the other thing. The parents, whether vaccinated or not, also got hit. Now, most of the parents reported quite bad headaches, um, their, their neck glands coming up, that they could actually feel everything moving through the lungs and splitting headaches, they reported um, really, really tired. Just what I got was I, again I could, my neck seemed to thicken the mucus my my mucus membranes just started pouring it out like Niagara Falls. I didn't get any of the splitting headaches. I didn't get swollen glands. I did get the body drag. Um, where I mean I'm a very fit person. I walk and normally people look at me and they just go, oh, 
the pogo stick has arrived. There mm-hmm. was no pogo stick in this house for nearly six weeks. And, but then you see all during that six weeks, I was helping different families and going and seeing them and suggesting what worked for us. We actually landed up doing a bit of jury rigging because what really worked very well in the 60s and the 80s and the 90s um, had to be changed. We had to do it different. So there was definitely something different about this measles than there was in the past. Don't ask. I, I have no clue what. You know, I had uh, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler um, on the show a little while back, and probably about three, three or four weeks ago, maybe a little longer than that. And one thing that he brought up was just the whole idea of, you know, um, a, the, the measles vaccines differ from region to region. But as you said, you know, we've got all these different strains. And if you're only vaccinating against certain strains, what then happens to wild types? And what happens with regards to mutations out in the wild? Um, what happens with regards to mutations within a population? So, you know, again, this is pure speculation. We don't know that for sure. Um, perhaps we'll touch on genotyping um, a, a little later well. in our conversation. But I don't know, it's so, something to think about anyway. It's, uh, it's, it's not, yeah, the, the problem is in terms of the vaccine, when they attenuate the virus, they put it through a process, but they don't actually know how it in, attenuates, okay? And then in terms of the measles vaccine, which is a genotype, that they designed the vaccine to hit the H and the F proteins on the outside of the envelope. And they didn't feel that there was any need to do anything else because as, as the different genotypes came up, they, they felt, I don't know how they felt, whether they looked or how they do this, but they said the H and the F proteins haven't changed and because the vaccine is directed at the outer coat, not the inner DNA, then it should give solid immunity. But we actually know that's not quite the case. There's plenty of medical articles that took blood from people who'd had natural measles and blood from people who were vaccinated. And the ability of the blood from people who were vaccinated to neutralize all the different strains was, was different from the blood from people who had had natural measles. And that was one of the things that made me quite confident that I could walk into this and not get hit. Mm. But I walked into it and got hit. So the other interesting thing about um, the whole measles vaccine business is it's a very difficult situation. I mean, when, when we had our kids, they got the measles vaccine. It was a single one and they got it on its own. They didn't mm-hmm. get it along mm-hmm. with any other vaccines too. And so, although they say you can give a million antigens at one time and everything will be fine and there won't be any ripples when you toss the stone in the pond, I'm not sure about that. I'm not so sure about that either. Yeah. I mean, it's like many things, you know, when you do safety studies, and I'm not even going to talk about that today because I've spoken about it ad nauseum on the show. Um, it's it's safety studies in anything, you know, often more, more often than not, it's safety studies are done in isolation. And we're not looking at what the compounded effects, um, you know, of multiple things taken at once, or the long term effects, um, you know, multiple things taken at once, and then at intervals, um, as, as, as life progresses. So yeah, so I think that's obviously a valid concern, but I don't want to um, dwell on that too long. Um, just to sort of bring us back into into the conversation, um, is is that okay if we can do that? Just come back to some to to, to New Zealand. And what happened there? 
So let's go through what I think is the most spectacular thing. The measles um, outbreak started in Canterbury and it died out fairly quickly down there. And then it started rumbling here and you can see all the graphs on, on my um, Facebook feed of the rise and the fall in Auckland. Um, but actually, I don't believe that that rise and fall should ever have been as big as it was because what actually happened was around July, for some reason, the, the measles outbreak up here was focused in the county's Manukau District Health Board area. And that is the area where there is a very, very big Samoan Polynesian community. And they are always going backwards and forwards from Samoa, of course, and they're always bringing family over because life in Samoa is not good. And so they bring them over regularly to have a break and get a bit of a life. And then they send them back home so they can go back to where they didn't have a bit of a life. So anyway, I've got a few friends who are nurses and, you know, I, I have access to people that I can go and talk to. So the, the measles started and there's plenty of newspaper articles that actually point to this. There were some kids who were not diagnosed as measles to begin with. It was diagnosed as something else and they kept going back to Middlemore Hospital and back to Middlemore Hospital with the something else and then finally it was diagnosed as measles. But all during this time, Middlemore Hospital did not have its air conditioning system on negative pressure and they soon realised the consequences of this because other Samoan children would come in. I know one family who took their, took their son in with a broken leg. He caught his measles at the hospital. And there were many other children who caught the measles at the hospital because the airflow was not on negative pressure. They realized that was happening. They changed it. And there was a newspaper article in August that actually said that they had changed that. But it was a bit late because they had actually lit a bonfire in Middlemore Hospital that went back out into the Polynesian community. And the vast majority of cases in that area were in the Polynesian community, who ironically have the highest vaccination rate of any ethnic group in this country. So that, that's important, I think, rate I feel. is 98.7. Wow. Now, they will argue with that. They will say, well, according to the National Immunization Register, that's not true. But I, I challenge that. And the reason I challenge that was that a group of us have been working on this together and we've put in various official information acts. And information was got from an official information act specifically on the, the ethnic groups which told us what that was and which was interesting because then some of us put this out on Facebook and then all the trolls came along and said, no, 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 we've gone on to the national, the, the national immunization register and it doesn't say that. But no, when we went on, it didn't say that either because they didn't actually have on the public area, the breakdowns the way that we wanted them. And we requested them exactly how we wanted them. And that is how we got them in Excel spreadsheets. So we were able to put those graphs together. They're still disputing that. I don't know why the pro-vaccine is still disputing that because um, somebody who saw some of the posts that I put up on TV actually asked the, the doctor who's the head of Counties Manukau, is it true that the Polynesian community 
have a very high vaccination rate and she came out with exactly the same figure as we got. <laughs> so we know that what we got was correct and I don't care who's going to argue with us because she said it on television. <laughs> so, and the uh, proof can, is there. Yeah, can, can I ask you something? Uh, you know, j just a couple of things come to mind. Are we, are we looking at, and maybe you can just hit all of these on the head, are we, are we talking about vaccine failure? Are we talking about, is there a genetic... Um, predisposition to measles with this population? Is it living conditions? Like, do, do, we have, do we know anything a little bit more about that? Well, a couple of years ago, I was following the mumps outbreaks in USA. And I don't know if you have actually looked at this, but the Marshallese Polynesian group in USA has an extraordinarily high secondary failure rate. Their mumps... Um, their mumps infection rate is much, much higher than any other group. Now, way back in years be gone by, I worked with Dr. Archie Kalokrinos in Australia, whose main focus was Aborigines. And he said the same thing. He said that Polynesian people appear to have a different makeup and they do appear to be far more susceptible to certain types of infections. So I do believe that there is a component in that. Um, but how that, how to prove that? Yeah. Again, we're... how do I prove that the measles has changed? I, I went waltzing in there thinking it wasn't going to hit me and I got hit. That's anecdote. I have right. no proof of that except that it, it sidelined while I was walking around like a slug for six weeks. And I think this is the same thing with the Marshallese. I think that, I believe there is a problem, and, it, and I don't know that it's so much ge genetic as perhaps epigenetic and nutritional. Okay, yeah, I want to talk about that for sure. We can come back to that if you want, or we can just go for it right now, because um, I do understand, I mean, obviously we'll talk about Samoa, you know, in Samoa, so actual Samoans living there, because I do understand that living conditions are quite different um, from obviously living in New Zealand or, or in another Western country. So we can well, circle in back terms to in terms of New Zealand, there, we know there are problems. There's a, there's a doctor up in um, Auckland Hospital called Dr. Cameron Grant who does a lot of nutritional research. And he has done some work on Polynesian communities. And the Polynesian communities, and I don't have this, as I said, I'm going to wing this. Mm -hmm. I don't have the studies to hand. But every study he's published, whether it's 2005 or 2011, the Polynesian communities come up with macro and micronutrient deficiencies in significant numbers. Not as, not as high as the studies that I have for Samoa. The Samoan macro and micronutrient uh, deficiencies are really, really serious in the two to four-year-olds. Very, very serious. Hmm. And, and it's all there in PubMed. I mean, the World Health Organization has to know it because it's all there. It's, all you have to do is go into PubMed and put Samoa and nutrition in there and you will find it all. Right. And, and we're, we're, we're definitely going to circle back to that. Um, obviously, me being a nutritionist, um, as one of the things I do, like I, ha I have a particular interest in that. But um, let's, let's get back to this. So we've got, a, we've, we've got a Polynesian community in New Zealand with a very high vaccination rate. They, there's this outbreak. Um, a lot of them are contracting this from the hospital. And now it spreads like wildfire in the New Zealand community. And from there, I'm assuming now that people are traveling back and forth. And so now it lands up in yes. Samoa, 
Right. Absolutely. And yeah. so, of course, New Zealand's to blame. And of course, it's the anti-vaxxers in New Zealand who didn't vaccinate their kids who are assumed to have given it to the, everybody the, the 1. else. 1.3%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, and, and let, let's, let's be really clear about this. A lot of the cases have been in the unvaccinated. And, and let's also be very honest. And that is, the, re the reason for that is those parents sought it out. Now, I, I think some of them probably um, <clears throat> now have a very, very healthy respect for whatever this new measles is because it wasn't just a fever and a rash for a week. They lost sleep and they got a few gray hairs in the process. Mm. So one thing I want to ask you here, do we have a date on, on when the first... Um, you know, obviously we're not, tr I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, like, have they been tracking genotypes? Do they know for sure that this came from New Zealand, it landed in Samoa? Like, do we have a timeline on that of, um, of when this New Zealand strain landed up in Samoa or no? Well, we don't actually, we, they say it's a D8 strain, but at, at the height of this in New Zealand, there were actually four different strains going around this country, okay. coming from four different countries. It was, I think it was Philippines, Oh, I can't remember what the other three, all Asian countries. Okay. So basically the measles came in to New Zealand via aeroplanes. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't a New Zealander who was overseas who brought it back. It was just one of those things that happened, even though New Zealand, of course, is now the blame for Samoa. You know, it didn't just drop out the sky here. We yeah. had four different strains from four different countries circulating this country over the year. And, and one of them, one of them, the, one of the newspaper articles did say that one strain they suspected was more virulent. Mm. Now, now that's really interesting because you see, you're a nutritionist, so you'll know about Cashan's disease and all that. You'll remember the Cuban 1994 epidemic neuro neuropathy, which was a Coxsackie B virus, but it was only virulent in the areas where, first of all, their food, their soil had no selenium, and secondly, where the people drank moonshine and smoked a lot. Now, you look at China, Cashan's disease, exactly the same. It looked like sort of like polio, except it only happened in areas where they were selenium deficient. The Chinese government sorted it out. They supplemented everybody with selenium. So, and we also know with influenza that Influenza virus in a person who's selenium deficient increases its virulence. And not only that, that virulence, if you get into a, a healthy person who, who does have enough selenium, that's not quite enough to revert that, that virulence back. So my question is, when they talked about here, one strain was more virulent, how did it get more virulent? Was again? Was it like the flu? Was it like Coxsackie? Was it like the enteroviruses? Did it require a key micronutrient deficiency to become more virulent? We don't know, but what we do know is that these viruses do change and their character according to the host, and that's the whole process. That's the whole principle of attenuating a virus to make a vaccine. You have to put it into a completely different culture that lives on a completely different medium and force the virus to survive and change in order to survive. Hmm. I and mean, that's, that's the whole principle of vaccine attenuation. But viruses can also change in the environment depending on war, 
poverty, malnutrition. We know all this. It's yeah. all there in the medical literature. But yeah. we don't know why different measles strains are worse. And it would appear that the Samoans may have picked up the more toxic one. If okay. you can believe what is being said, they may have picked up the ones that I know some Auckland families have had a real struggle with. Okay. So fair, fair enough then. And, you know, again, that's as I preface this whole episode with there are things that we know, there's things that we don't know. And um, obviously things are going to unfold after this episode that we might be dead wrong or it's going to confirm yeah. uh, some of the things that we're saying here. But just coming back so to the timeline. This time is all speculation. Right. So coming back to the timeline, though, when, yep. when were these cases happening in New Zealand? I mean, we're obviously recording now December 9th here, 2019. How, how far back are we going? Um, do you mean how, how far back in terms of so the, the infection the, rate in Auckland? Right. So, so the, in that Polynesian community, I'm trying to, is, the reason why I'm asking these questions is I'm trying to establish a timeline of when the first, when these first, the first outbreak was happening in Samoa, because as we're going to get to in a minute here, um, we know that they, the Samoan governments um, obviously sort of relaunched their MMR campaign in April, 2019. And then, you know, we sort of had more doses coming in from there. And then we had major outbreaks, which has happened uh, since then. So I'm just trying to establish a timeline and, and um, trying to get a sense of what came first. You know, was, was this initiated or was it perhaps compounded by this max vac vaccination protocol that was undertook in April? You well, know, what I do know is that up in Auckland, I mean, the Samoan government said in September that there was there were there was no measles in September. They actually announced that, and it, and it's you know you can Google that. Yeah. And their first case was I think around about eleventh of October. Well, um, I've just pulled up the graph that I have got on my Facebook page of Auckland. So the cases started to come up in August. Um, they hit the okay. peak on the thirtieth of August, and 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 remember that at least half, if not more, of these cases was in the Polynesian community. And then there was a second spike around 13th of September, about the time where the, pri the Prime Minister of Samoa said there was no measles. And then it tapers right down. And, and by the 1st of November, we're right back to baseline where we were before this outbreak in, in Auckland started. Hmm. And around about the time we're back to baseline, there it starts in Samoa. So they, I think because they knew that, um, that it was going through the Samoan community, that may be why the Prime Minister said to UNICEF, we need to have more vaccines and we need to have them here, which is probably why they were sent um, when were they sent? This, this was October 1st. October, yeah. Yeah, October they, 1st. they landed on October the 1st. And um, because I'm not on the ground in Samoa, I can't really speak to that. I can only tell you what I – because the government of Samoa pretty much puts their things on their Twitter feed. Um, and I go to the, the relief, reliefweb.international and I follow all the all – the, uploads that they do there so in terms of the data i only know that um, from what the samoan government says in terms of what's happening on the ground i have a better knowledge of that because a lot of my friends are samoan 
and they live here, but they have family there. And so they're constantly contacting back and forth. And they have sort of told me what's been going on as far as they know it. So, so what I know about that is from my friends, it's firsthand from my friends, but it's secondhand to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think we'll circle back to that because obviously we want to talk about the actual vaccinations, especially vaccinating um, people who are already infected because obviously that comes with a whole host of, of um, complications. But let's, um, I guess before we hop into that, I think it is important for us to discuss, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's well known that there are nutritional deficiencies um, in the Samoan population, right? Particularly the two to four-year-olds. Do we, you know, the things that I think about, obviously, would the, the big one would be vitamin A. Um, and you um, know, Well, actually, I don't quite agree with that. Okay, um, great. I'll tell you why. Mm. Because of all of the families that I have helped, and there have been many of them, I would pick two, two families um, who were completely contrasting. One family was very strict vegan. Um, fruit, vegetables, seeds, nuts, avocado, that's it. No butter, no dairy, no anything, no yeah. nothing. Um, and they look like strict vegans. There isn't uh, what I would call well-formed muscle. Um, let's, let's put it this way. Only the youngest kid who is considered their foodie, he went into this with a bit of spare weight, but all of the other kids went into the measles with nothing to spare. Hmm. And, they, and they paid a big price. Now, the other family, um, they're not into IT, but they're Western Price. Okay. And they, they're full on about animal protein. They eat very widely. They eat fruit. They eat vegetables. They eat, um, yeah what I would call a really good diet. They don't tolerate junk. The kids do not eat junk at all. Uh, they are not addicted to IT. Five children, they kept their vitamin A levels. This family sought out measles for months and they have very good vitamin A and all the rest of it. And repeated exposure after exposure and those kids wouldn't get measles. And in the end, I sent the mum. I said, look, there's two studies here, Trottier, 2008, I think it is, and soy, 2011, and they're animal studies. And I said, you better look at these because if your kids have got enough vitamin A, according to the animal studies, bystander uninfected cells can't get infected. And this is why no matter how much you rub those kids' noses up with anybody, your kids are not getting measles. Yeah, well, and that, that's what I'm saying. Actually, I'm, I'm I'm saying that with with adequate vitamin A, your body is in a much better position to fight off. That's right. But what they right? had to do, what they had to do, was drop back the doses, in order for their their children to actually catch measles. And the first child who caught did catch it is a child that I was holding my breath about. I thought this is going to be interesting because this kid has multiple hospital admissions for out of control bacterial infections. And so it was like the the Western Price family was the family that I was worried about. The the vegan family had if you looked at the, their raw vitamin A intake, it was super high except it was carotenes. And of course, you only absorb like 10 to 17%, but it was still super high. And I, I've got medical articles that show that um, spirulina properly prepared is, is highly absorbable. So I actually thought the vegans were going to do all right. But they didn't because they 
they had protein malnutrition. Oh, also, what I'll, I'll add, I'll add to that. Um, you know, you have to, um, you, you basically have to get one. The, the conversion rates go something like this: one part beta carotene, uh, sorry, twelve parts beta carotene to get one molecule of of actual vitamin a of true vitamin yep. a I know. so even if you're taking you know eating tons of sweet potato and carrots and whatever and then there is a genetic component as well some people are just not they're unable to convert um adequately you throw in zinc mm -hmm. deficiency into the mix as yep. well there's Absolutely. a lot of there's a lot of caveats that go around that you know it's not just a simple take it in and automatically you're gonna you know hey presto convert it into um the, the actual hard numbers so anyway um not to derail us um i, I think so but if you look at if you look at Samoa, um, there's a 2018 article um, which looked at nutrient intake amongst Samoan children aged two to four years, and it says most children met or exceeded recommendations for carbohydrates, fat, and protein intake. More than half of the sample were not meeting the recommended dietary allowance for calcium. 44.6 were not meeting the recommended daily allowance for potassium and intake of vitamin A and vitamin E was inadequate. Vitamin A, 25.9% deficient. Vitamin E, 25.6% deficient. 80% of the children exceeded the tolerable upper limit for sodium. But then they updated it, which was a really interesting one, with another study. No, this was a parallel study. Sorry, that was... 2018. The 2017 was child, maternal, and household correlates. It's a cross-sectional study, and it found in the children, 20.3% of children had moderate or severe stunting, 16.1% were overweight and obese, and 34.1% were anemic. Amongst the overweight, obese children, 28.6% were also stunted, and 42.9% were also anemic, indicating dual burden of malnutrition. Right. In other words, overnutrition, bad nutrition, malnutrition crap. Stunting was significantly less likely among girls than boys. Overweight obesity was associated with higher family socioeconomic status and decreased sugar intake. Isn't that interesting? That the, odds of, the odds of anemia decreased with age and anemia was more likely in children with an anemic mother. Now let's go back to that sugar intake. The, the interesting thing is that the higher socio family socioeconomic status, they eat far more starches hmm. than than the, the communities that tend to eat sugar. The communities that tend to eat sugar tend to eat a lot more fruit and a lot more vegetables because of where they are and, and who they are and why they are. But in New Zealand, we have a huge obesity problem in the Polynesian community here. Um, it's, it's massive. It's hmm. very, very rare to find a Samoa, even, a, even an older Samoan adolescent that is not heading that way. Do, do we and, know why? Oh, they love their two-minute noodles mm, okay. and their white flour. And it's, yeah, <laughs> you just look <laughs> at what goes in their shopping baskets and pack and save and you can see why. In, in some ways, in some ways, they're better off because they do have access to butter. They do have access to a lot more meat. They do have a lot access to a lot more protein than their families back in Samoa. So their vitamin A intake is more preformed than carotenoid. Right. Right. So we, we know that there's 
automatically going to be a difference there. And out of all of the measles cases in the Polynesian community here, there were no deaths. I, and I, you know, I think that's a very, very important point to, you know, you kind of took the words out of my mouth is in my notes here, I have, you know, deaths in New Zealand versus Samoa, because the percentages are obviously a lot higher. Um, perhaps let, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, I think we, we've kind of answered our own question. But why is it, you know, is it simply because of nutritional status? Or are there other factors that are tying into that? Well, I was talking again to my Samoan friends last night and they are a family who initially came to New Zealand in 1962 and the mother was and the mother's name is um, Annalisa and she was telling me that when when they were kids they all had measles they all had chickenpox and it was no big deal she also told me that they were always hungry she was a very very skinny she said that the villagers had their own plantations, but at the time there were big plantations of cocoa and coffee in Samoa, and the government owned those plantations. And what would happen would be that the children used to go and work on those plantations, picking cocoa and coffee, and they would get paid for that work. That, that pay that they did paid for their school fees. But when they wanted to eat, they would go to their plantations. And these people, they originally lived in an area. Um, where's my notes on this? Because I, I don't know that I can pronounce it. They lived in an area which they used to call Talimatau. Now, their home is still there, but that used to be just, plantations, just fruit, just vegetables. Their house is still there, but what, where they used to live is actually the government sports arena now. So their, the house now belongs to her cousin and their family, but they used to have the most amazing fruit trees all around their property, breadfruit and bananas. And, and she, she said before, um, before 1962, there were never any of the big storms. Um, when that big tsunami came through there, when was that? 2000 and... Was it 11? Was it, was it 09 or no, no, 11? No, no, it's, it's, I think, maybe the 09 one. Before then, she said that if you wanted coconut, you had to go a long way to get coconut because all of those trees, were, you would be walking for hours. But after the tsunami, when all the coconut trees were wrecked, the coconuts were spread across the country and now there's coconut everywhere. So where they used to live, they have coconut trees growing along there. That Talking about their life there, if they were hungry, they went and got breadfruit or mangoes or bananas. That the, the banana trees around their house were the ladyfingers one, and they grew very well. They did have pigs, but they only pigs were only ever for family events, for funerals or weddings. They didn't eat pigs normally. Um, they did have a little bit of fish and a little bit of chicken. Um, they didn't eat very much at all in the way of white flour or sugar, but their grandfather did bring over rice because they were constantly hungry. But they didn't have access to soft drinks or the sh level of sugar or anything like they have now. And they... One of the reasons that they left Samoa was 
1962, they did want a better life. Mm-hmm. Now, Samoans go to America, they, they go to Australia, they go to New Zealand, and they have a very, very tight family culture. They really, really look after each other. And so all the Samoans who go to America and Australia and, and New Zealand make a big point of sending as much money back as possible because they remember what it was like. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't have any control of what happens to the money when it gets there. And, but, you know, family mm-hmm. ties are very, very strong. So that was what life was like then. Now, they're constantly going backwards and forwards. What life is like in Samoa now is not the same as what it was then. She was saying that in the house that they used to have, um, they, they had an outhouse, but it was part of their human manure system. They actually had pigs in a pig pen, and all of their human waste and the pig waste was put through a system whereby it landed up as the most beautiful black soil, which they spread over the ground, which fertilized the trees. Now, that's not happening. People are going to water toilets now. And and they're using ordinary fertilizer. And she was saying that the plants don't grow the same as they used to. And there's also where they used to live, there was a lot of very, very barren land that they could play on. But as the families have got bigger, they've built houses on that. And all the fruit trees and stuff that used to be around their, their property is no longer there. So they, the, the kids do not have immediate access to go out there or to go up to the plantations and go and get themselves mangoes and pawpaws and, and bananas. And, and there were some other fruits that she was talking about, breadfruit they had, but they had some other cashew nut trees, for instance, was, was quite a staple. So, so, so essentially what we're saying, I mean, we're saying that, you know, people are generally more sedentary, the food that they're eating is, is less nutritious, and perhaps they've gone for more, quote unquote, modern conveniences, you know, sugar intake, etc, as they're getting some funds coming in from relatives that are overseas. I mean, that, that seems to me like the, the short end of the story. Yeah, they still eat a lot of taro, but taro is very starchy. Right. And it's, right, 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 it's, right. it's sort of pretty much the same as eating any other sort of starch, whether it's potato or whatever. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is um, the First Nations people here, um, you know, in Canada, that's where I'm sitting right now. They, they, it's well known. I mean, even throughout North America, for that matter, it's, it's pretty well known that the First Nations people do not tolerate carbohydrates very well. No. And your First Nation people have high diabetes and diabetes in Samoa is just rife. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the, the type of diet that we're talking about does not lend itself um, towards diabetes at all. Uh, in, in fact, it's probably a fast track to get there. But, okay, so, so I mean, there's, nutritional status is one thing. Um, obviously, we, I think we've established that poverty um, is another thing. Is sanitation a problem in Samoa? Is, or is that, is that not an issue at all? From the people that I know, it was not an issue because they had a traditional system of dealing with it. She said, yeah, there would be a bit of smell. You know, if you have pig, pigs in a pigsty area and they stay in that area, you're going to get smell. Obviously, if you yeah. have a long drop, I mean, mm-hmm. they, 
we, we know how the Nepalese deal with it, which is actually really similar. The Nepalese live in two-story houses and the bottom story, the bottom has a compartment where they put soil on one side and they just constantly put soil on the top. And then three weeks before spring, the Nepalese take all that out and put that out on the top of the snow so that the snow actually melts much quicker. The areas that don't have that put on melt about a month later. Hmm. Uh, so the Nepalese knew how to deal with human manure. The Samoans, the traditional Samoans knew how to deal with human manure and they they were very vigilant about it they weren't sloppy in that mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. okay yes you go there you'll be hard pressed to find toilet paper you'll be hard pressed to find soap that doesn't mean they were dirty yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing too that happened was before the tsunami most of the Samoans liked to live by the sea because you, you go have a wash, you go jump in the sea. Yeah. But then when the tsunami came in, they lost confidence in living by the sea. So they, a lot of them have moved a long, a long way inland. And so okay. while they're still able to wash and do the things they want to do, it's not nearly as easy, it's not nearly as convenient. And it also alters their way of life as well mm, mm. and you know the only reason why I'm, I'm probing here and asking these questions is i'm trying to give us a, a good you know solid footing and solid context um as to why the why there's been why the outbreak has been a lot more severe there and why the death toll or the death rate has been a lot higher than anywhere else you know that, that that's really what i'm getting at with all of this um i do wonder uh, you know it's the humidity there Metal doesn't last long and um, paper goes funny. The humidity there is very, very high. Um, that's one of the things that the Samoans, some Samoans hate humidity and that's why they love New Zealand. Some Samoans love going back to Samoa because New Zealand is dry, whereas there it's always constantly humid. Now, I don't know whether or not humidity changes the way viruses survive and spread. I mean, is, humidity, is the high humidity there a factor in, in rampant yeah, disease good, communication? It, it, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, you know, obviously, um, you know, if you look at insect-borne illnesses, obviously high humidity areas, you're going to have more insects and subsequently you're going to have more um, insect-borne illnesses. But yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Bacteria I could see as well. Viruses, not, not so sure. I mean, something that comes to my mind as well is... Um, you know, I think about co I think about co-infections. You know, so what about people who are already sick with you know something else? Um, plus, they're, they're nutritionally deficient. You know, now you've sort of doubling down the whole time. And uh, of course, then if you're exposed to a more virulent um, strain of measles, you know, it's the trifecta. Um, in, well, in, I think I think there was another key. You know. Having gone, just gone through and helped a lot of families with measles in this country, I, I got a very good guide of what measles looks like in people's who, people who have functioning immune systems. Now, a lot of these um, Samoan parents put photographs of their kids on their Facebook, on their Twitter. I mean, they all have mobile phones because they're provided with them, with them by their relatives overseas so that they can contact the relatives and say, can I have 20 more dollars? I can't make it. But what was really interesting was looking at those kids. And some of those kids look exactly like what you would expect in Africa in the children whose cellular immune system is so degraded because of malnutrition. Where you get wow. that kind of malnutrition, you don't get the rash the same way. You get, you get almost no rash. You get almost 
almost no eye problems. What you get is almost like a deathly gray pallor. The measles just goes in and you get death. You wow. don't you don't get the confluent rash and the the body going, I am making an effort to get rid of this, you know? And a lot of those photos were like that. I was just well, what you know, I, I've, if I'd been on the ground, I would have been saying to the Australian and whoever the doctors, "Do you see measles like this in Australia? If not, why not? What are you What are you actually looking at here?" But you were talking about um, secondary infections. There was a really, really interesting post that was put up on somebody's Facebook um, feed yesterday. And it was about her daughter. And I do want to, she doesn't realize what she revealed in this. So her daughter, who was seven months, was taken in for the MMR shot. A day later, she had a high fever, teary eyes, runny nose. And I took her to the hospital. They dismissed it and saying it was her body reacting to the shot. So we came home and we did listen to this, the usual Tylenol for fever. Yeah, I want to talk more about that in just a but, second. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> wet, wet cloths and I used a syringe to feed her as she lost her appetite. A week later, the fever broke and the rash appeared. Nico was back to normal. I posted about her kicking measles in the butt. But to my dismay, the following Monday, her fever started all over again. This time it was 106. I felt my guts twisted looking at the temperature tool. Um, I took her in around about 9 p.m. and they told me she was teething. They claim no baby can contract measles twice. I believe the doctor. The fever continued to the next day. She refused her bottle. So she's not breastfeeding. So this kid's already at a disadvantage. I took her to a private pediatrician, same diagnosis. I took her back to the TTM the same day, told I was being a paranoid mum. And the doctor said teething. On Wednesday, her fever fluctuated between 103 and 106. So I took her to TTM, same diagnosis. Then she turned to traditional healers. The worst mistake, I was desperate. Seeing her like this broke me to a million people. So she went to two and then suddenly she decided she went to the Kengan guy at water and then to um, the Talase. Anyway, um, she then just got desperate. And she went to the TTM directly to the isolation area. Nico's lips were starting to shake. She made a scene. The nurses ran to assist. The doctors inspected her chest. And they said she had pneumonia and it was really bad. Um, so then she was put into the ICU after the x-rays were reviewed. And while we were transported, sent to ICU, transported by ambulance. Um, and then she was saying babies were dying left and right. Nico fighting for his life. Three days of medication and IV. We were moved to the nursery after six days she was discharged. The point of sharing my daughter's story is that Nico was saved by the hospital with the right medication. And then she said, I am still reeling with guilt because I made the decision to take her to the traditional healers. Don't make the same mistake I did. It almost cost me my daughter. And she hasn't looked at the obvious thing, which is her kid got the MMR and was really sick for a week, then got the measles, which we know you can, within seven days, you can get measles from the MMR. And then this kid gets pneumonia and then lands up in ICU 
And she, the only thing she's concerned about is that she went to the traditional healers. Really? Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy. That's, that's kind of crazy. But you know what? This is like the giant elephant in the room right now. And let's just hit it head on because this is what's going on out there, at least on my Facebook feed. Um, and, you know, people are asking this question, which is, you know, coming back to the timeline, if you look at all of these countries, so we're not, I don't want to talk too much about Fiji and Tonga um, quite oh, yet. Oh, we need to talk. Talk about Tonga. <laughs> we, will, we will eventually talk about Tonga, but just not to, so yeah. I just want to be crystal clear here. The, the thing that is strikingly obvious is that the vaccination campaigns were introduced. Then we saw, you know, in the case of Samoa, 115,000 doses of measles, measles vaccines on October 1st. And then we see now, um, as of uh, November 28th, 42 measles related fatalities i believe that number's increased now to 70 but the yes, point has, the, yeah. the the point here is this is you know you've got measles coming from new zealand we whatever whatever strain you want to call that um but you know this is a pass from human being to human being and now it's spreading amongst a population that is vulnerable to that and now what you're doing you know and maybe you can't detect it quite clearly because the you know, things have changed, the strains have changed, people are, are deficient, whatever. But now you've got a mass vaccination campaign that gets dropped on top of that. Well, it's actually even worse than that because I have had it confirmed now from people on the ground that if your kid has measles and you go to the hospital, they are given, they are vaccinated on the spot on arrival. And parents are really furious about that. But at the same time, the Samoan culture, the way it is, is that you have respect for your elders, you have respect for your leaders, you listen, you do not, you do not push back, you stay silent, you are obedient. But yes, they are, they have been MMR, they have been, whatever the vaccine is that is provided for the measles, they have been giving that to sick children on arrival at hospital. Okay, so the question is obviously, and I don't think that we have a crystal clear answer here because it seems like there's sort of chicken and egg situation or at least there's points, multiple points of convergence, uh, I think is probably a better way to look at this. But, um, you know, obviously the people are asking, was this outbreak actually caused by the vaccine, first of all? So perhaps we can talk about that in a second. And the second one is obviously, as you just said, you know, giving a live virus vaccine to someone who is already infected with the measles, unpack that a little bit. What happens? You know, what, what, what is the downside for? Well, I can't listeners? really, I can't really unpack that because I have no clue what happens. Huh. I mean, I, I put on my Facebook feed, the 1997 World Health Organization bulletin. I'm, I'm sure you saw that. It's a, it's a dis disgusting article, but actually does say that you can vaccinate any sick kid in hospital, no matter how sick with the MMR. And even though, even though they know that parents will wrongly attribute any subsequent death to the vaccine, so that they've already got blinders on that the vaccine cannot possibly do anything wrong. It is some kind of a religious right, which is always for the good. Now, I can't tell you what happens when you put an MMR in children who they, the, the World Health Organization know have very, very serious nutritional issues. I don't mm -hmm. know. So, I mean, I, I just look at it like this, right? Just to pull a bunch of things together. You, you can imagine now you're susceptible. You have the measles already um, or vice versa. You get the MMR. So, you know, 
it's well known. You get an MMR shot, you're going to have a mild fever as your body fights the virus. I mean, that's the whole point, right? You're stimulating an immune response. And now you get someone who's come over from New Zealand um, carrying that strain, and now it's double down, right? So that's one side of things. Add on top of that nutritional deficiencies, for example, vitamin A. So it makes it a lot harder to fight back. Your immune system is obviously at a uh, now is experiencing a double blow in a sense. But if you now add to this, you know, the, this common practice of administering acetaminophen or paracetamol, which cuts the fever. You know, so now you're 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 taking medication to cut the fever. So you're actually you're weakening your immune response even further. Yeah. Which, which this is really, you know, a lot of people haven't spoken about this. You know, they're like, oh, well, it's safe to vaccinate when the person is sick. And I'm like, okay, but if you triple down now and say you're going to take paracetamol or acetaminophen, which cuts the fever, and then you're also prophylactically going to administer antibiotics, which now wrecks your microbiome, you know, which is 70% of your immune system, plus, 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 you know, surely you know, why, why are these kids now dying post-vaccination? And this is all just recent. This is all just starting to happen right now. And my concern with all of this, just to wrap up my thought, my concern with all of this is that we're going to experience catastrophic fatalities as we've got a, po a population that is mass infected and we just doubled and tripled down with these medications and vaccines. Yeah, I, I will speak to that. That, that, that case that I just read out, she went home and she did the usual Tylenol thing. Now, on my website, I have got several medical articles uploaded that describe how acetaminophen down-regulates the parts of the immune system that fight bacterial infections. So is it any wonder that after a week of Tylenol, that baby got pneumonia? Mm -hmm. and, and when you were saying about giving MMR to a sick kid. Now, most of these kids, as I said, I looked at those photos and they did not have the sorts of rashes that you see when a person's cellular immune system is working 100%. They had what you see in malnourished African children. So already their cellular immune system is not working. Their humoral immune system is not working. And you stick a vaccine in there? I don't think that's a clever idea. No, no, I agree with you. And you know, it, it breaks my heart because, as I said in the beginning of this episode, I feel like this is the canary in the coal mine. I, I, you know, it's no secret that globally speaking, our food is less nutritious. We've got more toxicity. Our stress levels are higher, you know, processed foods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you look at that, even in Western countries now, you, you know, my concern with all of this is, and, and perhaps I can move the conversation forward a little bit, my concern with all of this, you know, aside from the obviously heartbreaking fatalities and, and catastrophic consequences of all of this, my other big concern is public policy. And, and what is this going to do in terms of, I mean, already now we're seeing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's borderline martial law. You know, where, where, where vaccines are now mandatory in Samoa, like every single person, they're going door to door, vaccinating people. And, you know, having said what we just said, you know, that, that could be potentially catastrophic for a number of people. But what does this do, you know, from, a, from a, the, the mainstream media rhetoric out there and the general, you know, when you add censorship into the picture, when you add agendas and politics into it, 
my concern now is we're creating this huge fiasco. We're not hearing the whole side of the, the whole picture. And what is that going to mean as we're looking down the barrel of the gun with regards to mandating vaccines in, I would say, around the world, but obviously I'm in North America and that's happening right now. Like these, these bills are getting pushed through. So it's deeply concerning from that standpoint. Well, first of all, <clears throat> the media tells us it was mandatory, but on the ground, that's not actually what happened. I mean, they say, the Samoa said, well, having achieved 90% vaccination rate, we're going to lift the curfew. That, you see, that's not what happened. What happened was they went out, they, they tried to persuade people it was mandatory, but 10% of the parents refused and there was nothing they could do. And there was a news item which I put on my Facebook feed yesterday that actually said that. So in actual fact, it wasn't mandatory and 10% of parents pushed back and said, no, you're not going to do that. And there was nothing and that they could do. And the prime minister admitted we can't force it. Now, if you can't force it, then it's not mandatory. So where did the mandatory come from? Was this a media construct? And, and talking about media... What, what we need to do here is we do need to bring in Tonga because we're not hearing anything about Tonga. Why At are we all. not At hearing all. anything about Tonga? But if you go to the reliefweb.intel and you download Tonga's 27th of November 2019 um, summation of what's going on there, here's what's got. I'm going to read this. This is page two. Of the 380 notified cases, 145 have documented histories, with the remaining 235 cases awaiting verification. Of the 145 cases with documentation, 119, 82%, have been fully vaccinated with at least two doses of measles-containing vaccine, and the 26 or 18% have single documented dose of vaccine. Those 18% were appropriately vaccinated for age. They just hadn't had the second one. So of the, of the 145 cases that they looked at the vaccination documentation, 100% were appropriately vaccinated. They still have to look at the remaining 235 cases awaiting verification. They haven't done that yet. And I wonder why they're not doing it. <laughs> Are they scared that they're going to land up with a 100% failure of vaccine. It, it see, wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first be the time. First time. Yeah. And that, that brings up the point too. Tonga is quite a bit more organized and quite a bit more thorough than Samoa. And it looks to me like Tonga have got refrigeration issues. They may have vaccinated their people, but maybe the vaccines were done. Now, you look at refrigeration in Samoa and my goodness, that's a lottery. Now, my guess is, that, I mean, they keep saying that all of these cases are in um, unvaccinated people. But I know families whose children were fully vaccinated who still got measles. We don't know how many cases in Samoa are, fu are fully vaccinated or had one dose because Samoa isn't looking and Samoa isn't saying, but Tonga is. Hmm. So what does that, that mean? I mean, that, that obviously points to, to vaccine failure, right? I mean, is, is that... But the measles, and the, the media are not touching Tonga. Oh dear, we better not say that of 100% of, of the people of the records that Tong has looked at, they're all vaccinated. That wouldn't do, would it? That, that, wouldn't, that would not foster the mandatory vaccination narrative that they want to push. Yeah, it doesn't fit in with the line. No, it doesn't, with, 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 doesn't yeah. fit in with the line. And yeah. you're quite right. This is a canary situation because 
If you look at what the, what the New Zealand media is saying about the Samoan outbreak, it's all the fault of the anti-vaccine people in, in New Zealand. And so what's happening here is the media is leading the charge to make vaccination mandatory in this country because we, according to them, have caused the measles in Samoa. It's not the fault of the hospital that didn't have a clue as to how to stop measles spreading out of the hospital into the community. It's not the, hosp it's not the fault of vaccine failure. It's the fault of people like me and my two children who and we have, or supposed to have, totally natural lifelong immunity and can't possibly contribute to the problem. Well, and I think also just coming back to what you said earlier in 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 the podcast, um, the vaccination rates are upwards of ninety eight percent. So how Absolutely. you know, like it's it's not like we're talking about there's eighty percent of people vaccinated and the twenty percent that weren't, they were the ones who started all of you know. It, that's not what we're saying. So you know, we we have the same situation here in Canada where you know uh, the the board of health here in Toronto, which is the biggest city I'm closest to, it's the same thing. You know, they're saying, oh, vaccine hesitancy is on the rise and it's doubled in the last 10 years. And when you look at the numbers, it's like it's doubled from 0.6% opt-outs to 1.7% opt-out or something ludicrous. And I'm like, so you're still telling me we have a 98% plus vaccination rate, mm -hmm. which was yeah. well above the quote-unquote herd immunity, which is also a myth. So it's like you, you're, you're kind of speaking out both sides of your mouth. Absolutely, and, and, and they're and doing that here the, too. Yeah, it's happening all over the world. And when you look at the outcomes, though, you know, there's all of these cases that are happening right now. If you look at the mumps case that happened on the U.S. naval ship, if you look at the <laughs> whooping cough outbreaks in, in California, like you could just go on and on and on at, at the minimum 75% vaccination rate, at minimum. And in many cases, they're up to 100%, as in the case of the naval warship. So, you know, we've got vaccine failure staring us like in the face. And, you know, what's the solution? More vaccines. It's just doubled down. And, and it's kind of crazy, you know. Worldwide, in the developed countries, the vaccination rate has never been higher. And in my opinion, and I said this in Vax2, and they used it in Vax2, in my opinion, there is only one reason for mandatory vaccination, and that is to remove the only comparative control group that exists that would prove conclusively that vaccines create chronic ill health and immune system problems in the vaccinated. If you get rid of all of the unvaccinated, you can't go back and do a retrospective study. It's like the perfect not, crime. Not it's, it's like the perfect crime. It's getting rid of the evidence. You can to a degree by, by, okay, looking at the medical histories of the children who were never vaccinated but were then forced vaccinated. You could, you could do a comparative there. That could make an interesting study. But I believe that all of those records would miraculously disappear. <laughs> yeah, as, as they have done in the past, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, I know um, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, you know, Children's Health Defense or Children's Defense, you know, they, they just some of the stuff that he's unearthed through Freedom of Information Act is, is just being incredible. Um, you know, not necessarily just one study particularly, but looking at multiple different studies and, and um, you know, over a, a course of time. And yeah, I mean, you know, 
that I think is the only vaxxed versus unvaxxed into, you know, studies, quote unquote, that we actually have or data that we actually have. And, and I think you're quite right. You know, if you, if everyone is now mandated to do this, um, we're done in terms of, of comparative studies. We are. I think one of, one of the things that really astonishes me, there was a, um, a question was asked of Dr. Nikki Turner in this country. Why did New Zealand not have the deaths at Samoa? And her answer to me was absolutely astonishing. She said, oh, well, the reason that we didn't have the deaths that they have in Samoa is our medical system here is superb. Well, what a joke. I know a lot of the parents whose children have been in there and the treatment, the only thing that New Zealand hospital system didn't do that is done in Samoa is they didn't give the kids the MMR when they arrived in hospital. But in this country, kids not only got high doses of paracetamol, they got instant antibiotics. If they had any problem breathing, they got steroids and some of them got given vitamin E for energy. Vitamin A was not on the list. Now, she was tackled about that. Nikki Turner was tackled about the vitamin A, and she said, there is no evidence that vitamin A is useful for this issue. Oh, gosh. Her. And oh, I was gosh. thinking, I was thinking, I'm sitting here with an 18-inch stack of the last 10 years literature on vitamin A and what it does in the immune system, what it does to the extracellular yep. matrix. And she has the gall to say vitamin A has got nothing to do. Does she not know what she doesn't know? Has she not read her own science? No, she has not. And I can tell you, you know, I've posted this, just go into World Health Organization if you want. Um, the, the data is there. I mean, it's there in PubMed, it's there in World Health Organization. It's all over the place. And it's, it's, it's irrefutable. I mean, you know, I was just reading today someone posting who's who's on the ground. I think she's a nurse in Samoa, and they're having incredible success with um, treating measles with vitamin A. You know, there's Absolutely. vitamin A and vitamin C to less of a degree. I mean, I don't think the science is as robust, but obviously vitamin C has widespread um, benefits. But you know, there was a, a, a prominent anti-vaxxer in Samoa. I forget his name. I think his name was Edwin. Um, and, and the guy got arrested for, for distributing vitamin A and vitamin E, or sorry, vitamin A and C. And the guy's now facing two years of jail time, you know, which is just absolutely astounding to me. Uh, well, he was charged actually with incitement because of a, a comment that he made about the police. He, he said, I will be here to clean up the mess and go and enjoy your killing spree, something like that. That's the comment that he was, okay. it was incitement. So that's what he was charged with. But let's go back to the vitamin A. Um, the literature is so good. I mean, there's, there's also a lot they don't know. I mean, there's a lot, you'll see a lot of sentences saying it is supposed that, it is supposed that. But when you look at the observational studies and where they've been able to really study it very carefully, they say that it upregulates the genes in a matter of 20 minutes and you will see a noticeable difference within an hour. Mm -hmm. With why no side effects. You, <laughs> why would you not want to do that? Yeah, unless yeah. unless your aim is to have as many deaths as possible and make mandatory vaccination worldwide and cut everybody who doesn't want to use this off at the knees. Well, now you're just being a conspiracy theorist, right? I mean, come on. I'm just, I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. Sarcasm. Well, well, yeah, but you know, I don't know what the conspiracy is. All I'm talking about is the reality because it's people like me who have lifelong immunity, even though that didn't prove to be the case when I actually went and, and 
mm-hmm. you know, rolled my sleeves up and dealt with measles here. Um, it's people like me who are being accused of, of being the unclean, the, mm. the, spreaders, mm. the spreaders of every plague under the sun. Yeah. And it's ironic. It is just ironic. It is. And I mean, you know, again, there's not a lot of good literature on unvaxxed versus vaxxed. Um, However, I think from a lifelong immunity standpoint, it's crystal clear. I mean, why do you need booster shots? You need booster shots because vaccines wane. End of story. You know, some of, and I've seen pro-vaxxers post this, you know, oh no, lifelong immunity from vaccines. And I'm like, are you sure about that? Because (laughs) your own medical establishment says that you don't get it. So I don't know, which one is it? You know, and even if it lasts 10 years, you know, I look at the whole herd immunity thing, just as a sidebar, you know, people are like, oh, we need 95%, 95% for herd immunity. And I'm like, okay, but let's just take a step back. When last did you get a booster shot? Oh, I haven't had one. So technically you're unvaccinated is what we're saying. So technically we don't have anywhere close to 95% immunization. How come we're not seeing crazy outbreaks like of, of all kinds of communicable diseases? We're not. And you know, you know, the, the, this, I don't see how they, can, how they can possibly say what they're saying because Mayo, Mayo Clinic has got a, lab, a laboratory which is run by Gregory Poland, who is probably the strongest pro-vaccine person you'd ever know. And there, this year, there have been some astounding studies that have come out. They're on PubMed. Um, one, of the, one of the leading authors was Haralambieva. Mm. And this year she put out a paper and it was talking about how the measles vaccine cannot possibly give herd immunity. And she goes into great detail in the full text about what the problems are with the vaccine. And she also details the completely different immunity given by the vaccine as compared to the virus. Hmm. It's all there in black and white. Well, and also add, add to that that we haven't updated the virus at all. I mean, uh, according to Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, we've updated, I think that the, the measles vaccine has been updated once in terms of updating strains um, to be a little bit more quote-unquote modern. You know, so, so again, what does that mean to all of these 30 strains that are going on in the wild? Um, we're not sure. Well, well, that's another thing too, because if you look at the 1880, whatever it was, um, study on Faroe Islands, where they had a measles outbreak, and 70 years later, measles came through, and none of the people who got measles the first time got measles the second time. You can't compare that with today, because in those days, there was only one strain of measles. Right. And right. even in the in the early 1900s, there was only one strain. It was only by 1960 that it had evolved into two strains and now we're looking at 30 question mark how many more and so lifelong i I know this will probably excite the pro-vaxxers but i don't think lifelong immunity unless the outside of that virus stays exactly the same i'm not sure that lifelong immunity applies i mean obviously i still had some resistance to it but mm-hmm. I knew, I mean, every time I went to a different child, into a different family, the whole of my mucous membrane started to pour out stuff again. It was like, and I got hit again, and again, and again, and again. And it was like nonstop for six weeks. And my body dragged. I knew that my immune system was fighting something. So while I didn't come down with clinical symptoms or, or confluent rash or anything like that, and I didn't get complications, 
my immune system was working overtime. And so the question has to be asked, um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s when we constantly saw measles, was that constant exposure to measles actually doing a similar thing but not quite as significant? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, I think we also need to, uh, you know, you you address this and I, I want to reiterate this. The world has changed a lot in the last hundred years. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, like we cannot, you know, the, the, these arguments that come up where, look, we eradicated disease in the 30s, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but that was the 30s. I mean, there were uh, food rations, the Great Depression. Um, that's when RDAs were established because we had food shortages et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and look at what's going on nowadays. I mean, you, the world is completely different. And of course, if you go from region to region, that's going to differ as well, you know, whether it's nutritional status, whether it's genetics, um, whatever that is. But I think generally what I'm saying here is that epigenetic factors, you know, have, have changed significantly. And when you add to that the, the way that vaccines are manufactured, the ingredients that are in there now, the compounded effects, the vaccine schedule, all of these other things thrown on top of it, you cannot say or compare what happened 100 years ago or 150 years ago to what's happening now. No, you can't. But you see, the only you can't compare any of that. But there is one thing you can compare, and that is a group of children who've never had those vaccines with a group of children who have. And that is a constant. Right. That's what they want to get rid of. Right. Well, and, you know, they've done studies now. I mean, not a ton of them, but they've looked at Amish communities here in, in North America. And, you know, if you look at the Amish, the Amish, uh, there are pregnant moms working in the barn that are, you know, up to their knees in cow shits. And they are, you know, I mean, uh, no, no lights, like candles, no power tools, farmers live off the land. Um, no vaccines, no medications, etc. And again, I'm not necessarily advocating that we should all live like that. But the point is that when you look at their rates of allergies, when you look at uh, rates of autoimmune disease, when you look at any type of you know cancers, immune system irregularities, you will see that they are a lot healthier in that respect. Um, have you and, read and a book called Have you read a book called The Invisible Rainbow? I have not. No. Read no. it. Okay. It's a fascinating book. It, it talks about, you were talking about the Amish with mm, no mm. electricity and all that. He goes through the whole, the whole, like a historical timeline of when these things were introduced, whether it's just a light bulb, whatever, yeah. and right through to today and the explosion in different kinds of diseases, which appeared in the countries that used those things, but in the, but weren't there in the countries that weren't. And that what you were talking about with the Amish, Mm, mm. Read that book. It's brilliant. Okay, what was the name again? The Invisible Rainbow. Invisible Rainbow. All right, I'm going to write that down. That will blow your mind because it is definitely a factor. Mm -hmm. And when 5G comes, mm, oh boy, uh, I've done some episodes on that too. Just um, crazy stuff that's untested. So who who knows what's going to happen? One thing that is interesting, and um, I think it's coming up on the next podcast, is I recently found out that electromagnetic frequencies. Um, you know, as much as they agitate our own electrical circuitry in our body, our nervous system, et cetera, they actually also agitate uh, viral and bacterial infections. 
which is interesting. So, so, you know, people with chronic Lyme, for example, people with chronic infections, like drug-resistant infections, if they're exposed to chronic EMFs, which most people are, but especially if you're more susceptible to it and and in very high, um, well, a lot of, if, if you're very saturated with EMFs, it's very difficult to treat those types of bacteria and viruses. So you kind of have to wonder now in context of what we've just spoken about when you add all of that into the mix as well. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so anyway. um, Is is that why measles is a bit different now? I mean, it's sort of like proving rife, rife correct, but in a reverse sort of a way, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what? I don't think there's any one correct answer or any one causal factor. I think, you know, like anything, we have to look at multiple factors tying in, and then you also have to look at the individual. You know, different people are susceptible to different things. They're more sensitive to other things. Um, and, and honestly, it becomes a very, very complicated tapestry, which creates a lot of problems because, you know, the, the obvious problem is from a scientific standpoint, it's very difficult to prove one singular cause amongst all people, you know, and, and, and sort of find the proverbial smoking gun. Um, but, yes, because you, you have to reduce the confounder. And this is why exactly. in the 1980s, I started pushing in this country for a comparative study done in the same families, because just as VAX2 is showing in the, in the VAX unvaccinated, at that point in this country, we had families who had <clears throat> vaccinated their first couple of children with just a few vaccines, just the DPT, oral polio, and a single measles, and those kids fell apart. So they didn't vaccinate their subsequent children, and it was like night and day. So if you can do a comparative study in the same family with the same genetics and the same nutrition, maybe not the same mental attitudes, but you can still have a baseline there, which does reduce a lot of that. So you compare the vaccinated children with the unvaccinated children in the same environment with the same genetics, and that's about as clear as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, all fascinating stuff. Um, just in the interest of time, I know we're, we're, we've been going for a while here and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, is there anything important that you feel we've left out that you would like to address? I think we hit a lot of the, the, the important points that I had jotted down anyway. Yeah, I think there is one thing and... How do I put this? I know you're going to be able to edit this, so... Um, I don't, I don't, have, to I don't, I don't have to edit. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Um, this comes back to parents. We are given a gift, a child, a gift from God. We are also given the responsibility to look after that child. When parents delegate their responsibility elsewhere, then they must be prepared to take the consequences of delegating that elsewhere. You can't blame somebody else for something that happens if you choose to allow other people to make that decision for you. Now, if we're going to move forward in this issue, if I mean, it's all very well uh, jumping up and down and screaming and joining marches, but you have to know your stuff. You have to be able to to put your facts out in such a way that all the pro-vaccine can do is accuse you of being a conspiracist theory, theorist or, or, or tell you you're a murderer. They won't deal with the facts because they don't like dealing with the facts. But 
parents are not going to get anywhere until they get back to basic research and know what their convictions are based on. They have to know why they are not doing what they are not doing. And they also have to know why they are doing what they are doing to improve their children's health. You can't just have a vaccine damaged child and stop vaccinating and think that's it. And that people are going to listen to you because you were pro-vaccine once. It's not going to cut the ice. There's a ground zero here that's very important that people need to understand. And they say, oh, we don't have time. We can't do this. We can't. Well, then if you don't have time, your rights are going to be taken away. It's as simple as that. And when that happens, what are you going to say? Because to me, I'm going to go down fighting because tyranny is not worth living under. And medical fascism is not worth living under. Therefore, I will continue to try and protect myself, my family, and if some of that rubs off, fine. But just because I'm prepared to continue doesn't mean everybody else can sit back and have their lattes and live their life because Hillary and Brett and Robert F. Kennedy and whoever you put, put your appropriate name in is doing the work so I don't have to. It's not like that. It's everyone or mm -hmm. we're going to drown. Powerful words, I got to say, and I think you just summed it up in such excellent fashion. And I'm 100% there with you, which is why, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing, you're doing what you're doing. But, you know, this is an issue that affects every single person. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of people have lost sight of that. Um, you know, they don't want to get caught in the fray, they don't want to have heated debates or arguments with people online. And they just simply think that if they bury their head in the sand, it's all going to go away. Or, you know, my, my concern with that is, is obviously, it's easier at this moment in time to fight for our rights to prevent mandates and medical fascism from happening. But once it happens, it's a lot harder to turn the tide. It's, it's, we, we know that. I mean, history has shown us that. There is a proverb which I think is very applicable because a lot of the young people say they don't want to speak out because of their friends and their family. There is a proverb that says, fear of man is a snare. Now, when it says fear of man, it actually means love of man mm. because mm. You, you, you want everybody's approval. You want, you're, you're scared of what they will do. You fear them if you tell them what you really think right? So we actually have that problem in the world right now. People won't stand up because they, they want everybody to like them and they yeah. don't want to be seen to be different. I'm sorry, it's not the way it goes. Mm -hmm. If you have convictions, you have to stand for them because if you don't, you stand for nothing. Especially when the consequences are so catastrophic. That, 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 that's, that's, that's the other thing. So, Hillary, thank you so much. What an awesome conversation. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, like, we just, just keep up the good work, keep up the fight. And um, all we can do is, uh, is keep doing what we're doing and keep researching and getting the word out there. So um, th thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate yes, it. Yes, and you, and you and I can sleep at night. Yeah, yeah, trying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. All right. I appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. And for those of you listening out there, um, as always, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider um, sharing this one. You know, these types of episodes, those of you who have listened to the show for a long time, you, you, you know where I'm coming from. You get what I'm saying. Um, there's episodes that I feel are not just nice information and, you know, 
um, eat more fruits and vegetables, rah, rah, rah. There's episodes like this that are real pressing issues. And that's exactly why um, this interview actually happened. You know, Hillary and I spoke a few days ago. I said, let's make it happen. Let's get on on air. And um, this was recorded the day before it's being released. That's how important I feel this information is. So thanks for tuning in. Um, leave us a review, subscribe, share, do whatever you can do and help me get the word out there. And uh, you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. Thank you.